Good morning, Jubilee. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? It's good to be with God's people, amen? What a privilege we have. What a privilege to be part of a, a body where God is at work. At Jubilee, we try to summarize our vision to say we exist to do three things. We exist to glorify God, and we, we say that because uh, the old catechism says that the the purpose for which we were made is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So we gather week after week to say, God, we want to give you glory. We sing songs, even with our children here, because we want them to see what is the highest priority and affection in our lives. And so as a family, we gather week after week to give glory to the Father through His Son, Jesus. This morning we were in prayer meeting reading from Psalm 34, and it just all about this thing of glorifying God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Glorify. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's a jubilee we gather to glorify. Amen. And then we gather and we are seeking to grow seeking to grow because God's will for your life is if you were in Jesus, he wants to make you like Jesus. He wants to change you and change me even when it's uncomfortable to be like Jesus, even when that means being like Jesus and taking up the basin and the towel, or when it's like Jesus to let the little children come and welcome them, and yet we forget so easily that desire. I was talking with Frank this week. He was saying that he went into uh, Revive, which is our great Tuesday night gathering, and his prayer going in was, Lord, make me like Jesus. And then the night unfolded and felt like the wheels came off in multiple ways. Multiple things were hard, and there were discipline issues, and he was discouraged, and he was feeling down after he left. And then as he went home, he said, I, I remembered, wait a second. My prayer was, Lord, make me like Jesus, and now you've given me multiple opportunities to, to trust you and see you work. And so that's, that's the day by day. It doesn't always feel glamorous or uh, amazing, and yet God is working to grow us to become like Jesus. So we seek to glorify the Father, grow in Jesus, and third, go in the power of the Spirit with the gospel, with the good news. So all across the city, Pastor Dan just prayed. We're just praying that as you go to work, you'd go in the power of the Spirit at U.S. Bank, Wells Fargo, teaching, South High School, go in the power of the Spirit. We go to the nations. As Pastor Dan just mentioned, why do you go to Pakistan? Why do we, the other ones, go to these different nations? Why do we love these? We're going in the power of the Spirit. We're going home to love children. We're going to love our roommate. We're reaching out to our sister and our mom and seeking to love them all in the power of the Spirit. We're weak. He's strong, and one of the ways we seek to do that, uh, as we've been focusing on this morning, is through adoption and foster care, and multiple of you just saying, we're weak, you're strong, help us, and God's doing that, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. This morning, we are uh, in the book of Philemon. Again, next week is our last study in the book of Philemon, this very interesting book that we're, we're, we're looking to see the kingdom operating system. And, and today we've, we've got this text that is just so rich and so good. I hope that you can just spend this week uh, marinating in it and, and, and chewing on it and meditating on it. There's a lot here to get about the kingdom operating system, the way of living and operating that is modeled in this personal epistle 
that is very different than the way we think, though very, very different than, than the American mindset that we might be inclined to have. Next week, we will finish up thinking about Thanksgiving, heading into Thanksgiving, and then we will uh, spend Advent walking through uh, one Sunday in each of the Gospels, seeing how each one points them to Jesus as we prepare for the end of the year. So excited for all of those Sundays. This morning, though, we are in Philemon, and we have the middle section here, part of what Lou did a couple of weeks ago, and then a little bit more, and we're going to put that all together. And uh, there's some good things here, and I'm excited for that. So our text this morning is Philemon. If you're looking for it in the Bible, it's right before Hebrews. It's the last of Paul's 13 uh, epistles. I invite you to open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, open up one of the pew Bibles in front of you to it and follow along as I read uh, the Word of God, our sermon text. I invite you to stand, please, for the reading of the Word of God. Philemon, verses 8 through 20. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Father, we ask you once more, in our weakness, would you be strong? For me, as I preach, I need your help. And for all of us, as we listen, we need your help. Let this not be words that pass in and pass out, but Father, we plead with you that you would meet us in these few minutes by your Spirit. 
would we have the mind of Christ in greater measure this morning, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. This book of Philemon, as we have said, is in the context of a slave relationship. Onesimus is a slave. Philemon is the master. And yet what we have here is not what we might want or what we anticipate, which might be a political treatise. We might desire an abolitionist tract, as were so prevalent in our country a century and a half ago. So we have said the Old Testament and the New Testament are very clear that kidnapping, never okay. In fact, it's a capital offense, according to God's word. Slave trading, never okay. Forbidden. And so, so much of history is marked by these absolute blights that Scripture in no way condones. And yet what we have in this letter is not mainly a political solution. What we have in this letter is a kingdom solution, a kingdom operating system. For in the Roman Empire, slavery was everywhere. It was so common. It was in every city, in every town. And so Paul does not do what we might want him to do, to stand up and condemn slavery. Instead, this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, undermines the way of thinking that leads and empowers slavery. And instead of taking that mind, the mind of the world that would perpetuate slavery, it offers us a new operating system that undermines the system of this world that led to slavery and the system of this world that is prevalent today that we are so prone to live according to. In our day, a lot of people are placing all their hope on political victories. They are riding and they are falling with the political news of the day. And good political policy is important. And yet, loved ones, we must notice how much time the New Testament spends discussing political work. The New Testament has another focus, another obsession, another kingdom. And this kingdom operating system seeks to gut slavery at its core. It's operating system that calls us to seek first Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' righteousness. Does this mean we're not to have any role in politics? Well, throughout Scripture, there are powerful people used in powerful ways in government and political roles. Think of Joseph, placed in that second role in Egypt, who enacted policies that were uh, instrumental in the saving of so many. Think about Esther, using such courage, faith in God, in her role as queen. Think of Daniel, in exile, serving with such faithfulness to God, no matter 
the cost, each one seeking first their God and then ruling and serving well. And so today, it's wonderful when we are given a platform, an opportunity to do so as well. And yet the New Testament is not focused on policy discussions as we might expect. Very little comment on the Roman government of the day. And Jubilee, I want to tell you that this is very good for us. For if Philemon had been mainly a treatise on abolition and the evils of slavery, we might have read it from a comfortable distance, shaking our heads, that it even needed to be said, very comfortable with ourselves. Instead, the living active word of God has come for us this morning to pierce our very hearts and souls, to cut through our thoughts and intentions, each one of us. The kingdom operating system is calling us to a new way of thinking, a new way of thinking about the least. You see, we always have the least around us Paul did in that day, but we do today. And human nature is prone to create a pecking order. The powerful and the wealthy up here and the left out and forgotten down here. What we have here is not a political platform that allows us to read as disinterested historical students, but this picture of the kingdom that challenges us to the core. Think about this context for a moment. The writer of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the most powerful Christian leader of his day. He is at the center of a revolution that is global. He is an apostle of Christ. He is a man with unparalleled spiritual authority that every Christian would defer to. And what is he doing with that great platform in this book? He's writing on behalf of one of the very lowest and least in the entire Roman Empire. You line people up in the Roman Empire, most important to least, Onesimus would be very far at the back of the line. So this book is not just what is right and wrong historically or politically. It is the way of the kingdom. That is the way of Jesus. And how does that shape how we live with those we love and how we live and love the most forgotten? It applies to slaves. It applies to those imprisoned. It applies to refugees. It applies to political opponents. It applies to our own families and it applies to children without families. Suddenly, the far off comes for us very near. Well, in these verses, there are many things we could point to. We're just going to focus very briefly on four words that all begin with C. For whatever reason, there are a lot of words in this section that begin with C, and four of them are particularly important. We're just going to take them as they come, each one highlighting uh, something else, uh, something else of importance, some other truth here. Each one of these 
helpful for us in thinking about the kingdom operating system. So we begin in verse 8. Paul says, writing to Philemon, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you, in Christ. Paul has begun, as we said several weeks ago, with identity. He did so in verse 1. Now again, he is speaking about who he is in Christ. And when Paul began the book, we remember that Paul did not begin with a word of power, showing how powerful he was. Instead, Paul began from a place of humility. Turn your eyes back up to verse 1. Paul, a what for Christ Jesus? Read it with me. Paul, a what for Christ Jesus? A a prisoner. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. That is how he is identifying himself. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now in verse 8, we pick this up and he says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you, Verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, catch this next part. Especially those of you who feel a little more gray up here and a little more ache down here. Hear what Paul says. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Think about his identity. Think about how he is speaking of himself, who he understood himself to be. When he wrote to the Romans, he said, I, Paul, a slave of Christ. Remember the last book we went through, Jude, was written by Jesus' half-brother, and yet Jude does not begin his book saying, Jude, the brother of Jesus. He says, I am Jude, a slave of Christ. You see, in the kingdom, the way we normally think gets turned upside down. And Paul, he was all about strong as a young man. He was about achievement. He did everything right. He had position. He had status. He had power. He was about it. He was as impressive religiously, spiritually, culturally speaking, as he could be. And yet something has happened to Paul. He has wrestled with his king. He has wrestled with his God. Think about the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about how much he has endured, how much suffering he has gone through, how many trials he has walked through. Finally, the the climax of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, there came for me a thorn in the flesh, very painful. We don't know what it was, if it was a health issue, if it was a person that just would not leave him alone. And Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, Lord, take this from me. It would be so much better, God, if you would take this hard thing out of my life. I could serve you more. Everything would be better. Just take this away. God's answer God, the one who loves us so much that he wants to grow us to become like Christ, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. I've got you in this trial for a reason, and I'm going to give you grace in this trial, God said to Paul. So Paul, 
concludes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness that the power of Christ may be magnified. Friend, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you signed up for the Christian life saying, I want to be strong. I want to be powerful. I want to succeed. And if you've walked with Jesus for any time, you know that his is not the path of becoming superheroes. It's the path of weakness and trusting God through trials and difficulties. And our Father calls us to walk in weakness, even as we boast of our weaknesses and how Christ was made strong, shown strong. We read in Psalm 34, I mentioned in prayer meeting this morning, I was just struck over and over again. It says, God will deliver us. God will deliver us. God is our refuge. Who needs those promises? Those who are facing difficulties and trials. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 34 says, but the Lord will deliver us out of them all. And here is the the apostle. What is his identity? His identity is one who is in Christ, a prisoner for Christ, a slave of Christ, one who has power and yet makes himself lowly like Christ. So friend, I wonder this morning, what is your identity? In your singleness? In your marriage? As a young person or as you get older? Do you consider yourself to be a servant, a slave of Christ, wanting to be found faithful? Or do you find yourself one who is waiting to be served? Do you find yourself this morning in Christ, knowing that you are loved and accepted? Or do you find yourself desperately trying to find love and acceptance from the other person and the other group? Paul writes, as an old man and as a prisoner for Christ, Christ is his identity. First C. Second C, also in verse 8. The word command. The word command. Now we get to the heart of, of, of what's going on, this argument, this kingdom operating system that is so powerful here. It is worthy of our consideration over and over and over again try to track this this train of thought that goes through our whole text that we just read. Verse 8, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Remember, Onesimus has left Philemon. We don't know for sure that he's a runaway slave. There's some reason he has left. He has been with Paul. He's in prison with Paul. Paul has led him to faith in Jesus. They have become very close in prison. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back. It it seems, as we will see in a few verses, that Onesimus has wronged Philemon in some way. We're not exactly sure what that is. And Paul now is writing to Philemon, asking him to receive him back freely, with love, forgiving everything just as he would Paul. So this is a big ask. We talked about that a couple couple of weeks. It's a big deal, big letter that he's writing. Onesimus had to be trembling even as he brought this back to Philemon. 
But what we want to see here is, is the mode that Paul uses. His tenor. And this has application for so many things. But get this. Let's follow this. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you, I have the authority to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer, I think it better to do something else. What is that something else? What is that something better? To appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for Onesimus. I appeal to you for Onesimus. Look down to verse 14. He's unpacked what's happened. He's unpacking how precious imprisonment, how precious Onesimus has become in his imprisonment. Verse 14. I preferred to do nothing. He has spiritual authority. He could command. He says, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. We've got command. We've got consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. This brother is working with his language, with his entreaty. Would have been much quicker to write a mandate, to write a command. Point one, point two, point three, stamp, send, go, obey. It's not what he does. It's not what he does. I am bold enough to command you. But in the kingdom, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This is not normal. Paul's calling him to a big thing. But consider how he does so. I prefer to appeal to you so that nothing would happen without your consent. I am not forcing you to do this. I don't want you to feel like you are under coercion or under compulsion. In order that your goodness wouldn't be out of compulsion, I have to do this. I'm being forced to do this. It's against my will. But it would flow, end of verse 14, out of your own accord. Willingly, cheerfully, happily. There are powerful applications here for parenting, for discipleship, for lots of life. Remember a young man years ago, back in my youth ministry days, back this young man and Ricky and I took a trip out to Montana Wilderness School of the Bible, take a trip. I thought he, this young guy was going to go, and Ricky ended up going instead. It's a long time ago. But this young guy's father, I don't think he had read Philemon, because he loved to command his son. He had rules. They were to be followed. That was it. So his son grew up 14, 15, 16. If you know anything about parenting young men, you know that doesn't work very long. To parent only by rules. So his son would say, Dad, can I go wait in the car while you talk to, to Pastor John and listen to the radio? Nope. Nope, won't allow it. Not sure what you're going to do out there, son. He had rules. Tight rein. What happened? He held him, he held him so tight Boom, he was gone. Never come back, right? 
Rules work when, when babies are little. And in America, we know it's efficient to command, give law, order, rule. But that's not this way of the kingdom. God's word gives us the law, but then it calls us to obey from the heart. For what God wants from you, loved one, is your heart. He wants your heart to know that he is God and he loves you and he's calling you into a love relationship with you. Why did Jesus come? What did he want from his people? He wanted their hearts. Loved one, he wants your heart, your devotion, your affection. Not as one who stands needy, desperate, but as a bridegroom who loves his bride. So Christ loves his people. God commands us to love him for our own good, for our own joy. And so here we have this appeal. An apostle, one with power, one with standing, could command, but he doesn't command. He appeals. And there is a powerful picture here of spiritual leadership. At lunch today, I invite you to discuss this. Consider this. Consider what Paul is doing. Why does he not command? Why does he appeal? Why is he so concerned that nothing would be done without Philemon's consent? Why is he so concerned that his goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of his own accord? And why, in verse 21, does he say, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different operating system. It's trusting God to move in hearts, to stir up obedience out of a heart of joy and a heart of affection. It's powerful. So we see in Christ, our identity. We see this command, not commanding, but doing nothing with consent, not by compulsion, this, this call, but appealing instead. Third C, we want to see very briefly, is in verse 10, the word child. The word child. Something else that's very different about this letter than what we would ordinarily expect to read. Here again is the apostle writing for this lowly one, Onesimus. And, and consider how he speaks of him. He's not writing as a lawyer on behalf of his client. He's not writing as a politician on behalf of his constituent. He's not writing as a distant spiritual leader for an anonymous congregant. No, instead, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. And as you scan this book, you can see there's a lot of familial language, language of family in this book. Here is this low, cast out Onesimus. And Paul says, he is my child. Verse 10, he continues, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you. I am sending my very heart. Verse 16, I'm sending him back to you 
and, and, and here's where he just sticks a bomb under the, 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 the basin of slavery. He says, I'm sending him back to you no longer as a slave. You see, the, in, in the Roman Empire, slavery, slaves were thought of as property. They were not considered people. They're not valuable as people. Paul comes and sticks a bomb under that thing. He says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. To me, but now much more to you. Sending you back a brother. And this is Paul who wrote, think about the beginning of this book, he he wrote in, in brotherly language. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister. Now he speaks to Philemon, and he says, verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. This is near language. This is dear language. This is the language of family. Times it can be jarring if you've come to Jubilee for a little bit, to hear that the church is to be the household of God. The church is to be a a family. And yet so it is by God's design. Some of us know all too well that families can be very messy. They can be broken, and so too churches. And yet by God's design, God has given families knowing they can be wonderful and good and powerful. And so too he has given the church for that same reason. That relationships inside, they will need forgiveness, but oh, they can live life over many years to such good effect. Katie O'Neill, my goodness, nine years, that's crazy. How did, how did nine years go by that way? Amazing. And so many of you just doing life together as a family. And here is Paul. Not just one church in one city, but this familial love and a, of affection across cities, through the church, in Colossae and Rome and Jerusalem, all over the place. This language of love and affection. He's not coming as Mr. Big Time. He's coming as a servant. He's speaking about being a father. And loved ones, doesn't this echo the way of our Savior? Think about how he taught us to pray. When he taught us to pray, it wasn't a a distant religious formula. He said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, our Father. Jesus speaking to us as a brother, not ashamed to call us brother calling us into the family of God, Christ in his suffering, accomplishing this. It's amazing. It is the kingdom operating system. And so families work hard for unity and love and forgiveness and care. And as a church, we must work hard for unity and love and forgiveness and care. As loved ones, loved by the Father, in Christ, ready to love and welcome others in to the family. Well, each of these deserves much more time, but our time is short, so the last C we will consider is in that paragraph 17 through 20. Paul says this, so if you consider me your partner, 
receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge. Charge that to my account. Charge that to my account. Again, consider the transaction he's speaking of. Paul, a spiritual father, it would appear in these last verses to Philemon, and now a spiritual father to Onesimus, is taking up the cause of one of the most forgettable of Rome's people, not even a citizen, a slave. And he says, if he owes you anything, if he has wronged you at all, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. They had history. They went back. Paul had ministered to Philemon's life, clearly. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. How can you do that, Philemon? By charging whatever Onesimus owes to my account. And here, Jubilee, for the fourth time, we see this amazing kingdom mindset. The apostle, using all of his station, all of his past ministry credit and faithfulness, for the very least, the highest in so many ways, taking note of the lowest, advocating for the least. Onesimus had a debt. Paul puts his name, his reputation, his place on the line. And if you say, wait a second, this sounds familiar. This sounds like an echo. Indeed it is. It's an echo of the gospel. And in the gospel, we hear that we don't stand in the place of Paul. In the gospel, we stand in the place of Onesimus. We are the weak ones. We are the needy ones. We were unrighteous. And God says in his word that for our sake, the Father made Christ to be sin. Christ who had knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Why do we give thanks? Why do we glorify God? Because this is the gospel and it's true for us. This is the way of the kingdom. Every one of us unrighteous. Every one of us deserving the penalty. Christ, the righteous one, deserving no penalty, takes our penalty and instead gives us his righteousness. This is beautiful. Amen? The powerful caring for the weak. Friend, if you are here this morning and you don't know anything of this righteousness of Christ, I want to tell you that you will stand before a righteous and holy God. And there is one way only to be forgiven, and that is to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. The gospel gives us many analogies of this kind of relationship. One more is when it tells us in 2 Corinthians that all of us were poor. Spiritually speaking, all of us were poor. We had nothing to offer to God. We couldn't buy our forgiveness. We couldn't buy our way into heaven. What we needed was something we could not afford. And so 2 Corinthians says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, for our sake, Christ who was rich left heaven in all of its plenty and he became poor. Why? So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. The powerful, the wealthy, giving up that power and wealth for the sake of the poor that we might become rich. This is the kingdom. In the kingdom, our money and our homes and our family and our church are to be used for good. As Paul did for Onesimus, as Christ has done for us, so we seek to do as he helps us in the power of the Holy Spirit, little by little by little. Always aware that we are weak, not superstars and certainly not superheroes with super abilities. And one way we are seeking to live this out as a church is by caring about foster care and adoption because as Zach and Angie read, it's at the heart of pure and undefiled religion. God cares about how we care and think about orphans and widows in their distress. Now, if you're like me, you look around Jubilee and you say, this is not a very impressive place. We don't have impressive carpet. We don't have an impressive building. We don't have all that much money. It's really ridiculous to try to do too much for the kingdom. If you look at those flags, you might look and say, good night. What could we possibly do for any of these countries? And yet God in his, work, in his strength is pouring out strength in different ways. As Pastor Dan said, Pastor Lou, he's with Walt going to Pakistan where Walt and Mercy served for years and to make much of Christ. And we can look at ourselves and think about foster care and adoption and say, who are we? What can we do? We don't have strength. We're not rich. We're not, life isn't in a perfect situation for me to participate or help. And then we're reminded that when we are weak, he is strong. Just thinking about my own life, a little bit about this. 21 years ago, my wife and I were broke. I was making $22,000 a year, living it up, big time. And like Zach and Angie, the Lord had, had burdened our heart for adoption. We thought, how can we possibly do this? We can't do this. And God opened crazy doors, provided the ability for us to adopt our first child 14 months after we were married. Month, or a year and a half later, we were preparing to adopt our second child. How we paid for it, still have no idea. God did it, God's math. In the middle of that, my wife had gotten pregnant a few times and we had miscarried a few times and there were many tears leading the youth ministry at Bethlehem at that time and announced twice, we're pregnant, everyone's so excited. And then we walked through the tears of, of losing those little babies and, and yet God was with us. And right at the end of our second adoption, we found out that my wife was pregnant. And we thought, oh boy, what do we do? We're young, haven't been married very long. We've got one child, could potentially have three children. They said, you can stop. We just said, God, we trust you. We went through with that second adoption, and seven and a half months later, 
Our daughter Abby was born. And suddenly we had three kids, two and under. And life was crazy. It was insane. And we said, God, if you get us through this year, we'll, we'll trust you for anything. Just believe you for anything. Like just this year, we were making deals with God. We were, we were desperate. You don't understand the amount of diapers and wipes and stinkiness and everything. It was, and no money. And right at that end of the year, my wife handed me this little picture that in my ignorance, I didn't even know it was a picture. A little black and white, bunch of dots on it. And here were these two ovals that in my dullness suddenly dawned on me was an ultrasound of twins on the way. And so Sam and Elliot were born the week after our fifth anniversary, children four and five, and our oldest is a big helper being all of three years old. And we said, this is insane. We weren't strong enough, we weren't wealthy enough, and we have felt weak all 20 plus years of that journey. And yet so much grace from God. So much grace from God. Grace for number six and seven, five and six years later. We're so overwhelmed in those days. Like, how in the world do we do this? And the, the lady sitting in the back row there next to my daughter, my sister Paula, came every single week and cleaned and did our laundry for four hours. Just go, who does that? Who does that? That's ridiculous. You know what that is? That's the mind of Christ, right? That's saying, I'm, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I'm, just, I'm, I'm coming to serve. And Jubilee, I just see that across this body, like in crazy ways. So many of you just serving, loving, laying down your lives. And, and we look at this, this foster care and adoption thing and say, who can do this? We, we wonder at times, it's hard. We say, is, is this worth it? Then little Jaden comes running up to me. He says, Pastor John, I know what that is in your hand. Holding a vegetable from someone's garden they've just handed to me. He says with, with bright face, that's a zucchini. I love zucchini bread. Mom, can we make zucchini bread? And I go, you've got to be kidding me. It's unbelievable. Think about one life changed in such a powerful way. Think about a little girl who's in a super hard situation not very month, many months ago and God moved a couple in this body to pursue her to pursue her well-being God brought that little girl into our body not too many months ago she gives some of the best hugs I'll tell you she sent me this card a couple weeks ago which is like triply precious because of the story it says I love you L-U-F Best spelling of love I've ever seen. Unbelievable. One pastor said it like this. He said, forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of faith. Because when we forget what God did, we stop believing what he will do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would Cause us not to be a forgetful people. Forgetting that you cared for the weak, the poor, the fatherless. And just as you cared for us and have sustained us these many years, 
So you go on caring. You go on loving. You go on using the weak and the broken for one life here and one life there. You are the God of all grace. You are the God who's strong in our weakness. You are the God who provides for every need for your people. So, Father, right now we lift up to you our needs. We lift up to you our weakness. We lift up to you our faltering faith. And we pray that you would strengthen us for a ministry that is life on life, just doing life with one another. Discipleship, foster care, adoption, just loving one another, serving one another. Thank you for the many ways that you're doing that. And thank you that you have good purposes and plans ahead. Father, we come to you as needy ones. So thankful that you considered us and you gave us your son. We bless you in his mighty name. Amen.